0: Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to Health by Heather Hirsch. I am so excited today. I have a really special physician here, and she's going to help continue in our series of the Black Lives Matter, which I started a few weeks ago. So let's welcome Dr. Tamika Zori. She is a reproductive endocrinology infertility specialist. So she has done four years of OBGYN residency and then the three years of uh, infertility fellowship, and has been out in practice for a year, and will soon be joining Spring Fertility in the Bay Area, which is San Francisco, for anyone who else is geographically uh, challenged like myself. So I'm so excited to have her time. Both of our uh, various family members are napping, so we've got the time to be together and chat today. So we're really excited to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. So I always like to start out with asking, what got you into your field? What about uh, being an infertility physician? What is the most exciting aspect to you and how did you get there?
1: Yes, so thank you so much Heather for having me on today. Um, You know, I I think it started with in med school, I was very drawn to women's health um, throughout my entire clinical, all my clinical rotations. I even, I loved OBGYN and that's kind of what drew me to that field. But then even when I was on different rotations, I found myself gravitating towards the women's health aspect of any rotation I was on. And so I kind of knew early on that definitely OBGYN was the way I was going to go. Um, I love the mix of clinical surgery, um, that you get to follow patients along their health journey. Um, and then with fertility, I didn't really have a lot of experience with that until I became a resident and I just was very drawn to the patient population, um, being able to be a part of you know, a a woman, a couple, a person's, um, parenthood journey, I think is extremely special and unique. Um, I love that the science and the, the skill is always changing. It's very cutting edge right now. Um, and just like the science behind it, I really enjoy.
0: There's so much evolving technology. You're absolutely right. And as we were talking before we started, we are seeing a lot more people delaying their fertility. And uh, I'm wondering how that plays a role in some of the patient population that you see.
1: Yeah, that has definitely changed. I'd say through for the past five, 10 years almost, that women are now delaying um, pregnancy, childbearing, um, whether it's due to career or education or wanting to travel or finding the right partner. Um, But now the good thing is we have options to help women preserve fertility. Um, Something called egg freezing that you know women can find more information about to undergo and freeze eggs for the future. And that I think has definitely given women more freedom in what they want to do in life. And, you know, I know, especially on the East Coast, West Coast, that it's a very popular option um, as women are, you know, delaying childbearing.
0: Yeah. And we also wanted to talk about particularly thinking about the patient population that you see, we wanted to especially discuss minorities and infertility as well. Something that we were both mentioning beforehand, there's just not a lot of awareness around. So I'm sure there's a lot to unpack. So I'd love to start by just asking you if we know, you know, the uh, prevalence of infertility in our minority populations and how that maybe translates into seeking care, because this care can be costly, right? So, yeah. what do we know about prevalence? And, you know, let's start with that. Yeah,
1: so we know that just in a baseline population, infertility affects about one in eight couples, one to six to one in eight, depending on what studies you're looking at. Um, when we think about minority women, um, there have been several studies that show that minority women might have two times the risk of infertility compared to white women. Um, and then along with that, they are about 50% less likely to seek out care. And so when you're affected twice as much and you're receiving care 50% less, you know, that, that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of issue disparity in care when it comes to infertility treatment. Um, and so it's finding the time and the, the, the right way to educate women, getting them into our clinics and having access to care because cost and access are, are huge barriers as well as education to, to receiving fertility treatment.
0: Yeah, I was just going to sort of say, what do we think the biggest barriers are? So when we're thinking about education, are you alluding to educating patients that they should raise awareness about their infertility? Or do you mean educating physicians about discussing this with their patients or like from both ends?
1: Both ends. I think from the patient perspective, I know a lot of women, you know, we're as, as children, as adolescents um, in high school and middle school, we are you know, taught sex education and we are taught all the ways not to get pregnant. And so yeah. I feel like we go through our life assuming that when we want to get pregnant, it's gonna be relatively easy. And it's a very rude awakening for so many people about how difficult it might be to conceive. And so I think it goes back to early education about fertility, um, women knowing, women needing to know that we have a limited egg supply. You know, we are born with all the eggs we will ever have. And as we get older, those eggs will decrease in number and quality until we go through menopause. No matter how healthy you are, how healthy you eat, how much yoga or running you do, Mm -hmm. this decline happens for everyone. And I think it's something that we need to talk about more so that women are aware of, you know, what decisions they can make to either preserve fertility or if they need to just have children now, if that's their choice, um, we have to talk more about that. And additionally, from a physician standpoint, we have to be talking about this to our patients you know, every year. If you're not willing to have children right now, that's fantastic. Have you considered egg freezing? If you have and you feel like it's not for you, well, that's great. At least you know your options and you've made the choice that it works for you and, you know, your body.
0: I want to throw something out there to you that may be a little bit polarizing, but I don't mean it that way. But I'm sort of wondering if... There's maybe a a big misconception that stems to physicians because at the end of the day, we are people as well, affected by society. But this conception that minority women or black women have children at younger ages or are very fertile and don't have fertility problems, do you think that there's something to that and maybe how that plays a role in even asking a woman each year? Mm
1: Absolutely. I think I think it is several fold. I think one, just implicit bias that physicians have. And I think that is one way that we need to improve our training and our and how we care for patients. I think we all have implicit biases when we see a patient, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, no matter what, based on our life experience, based on our training, based on everything. And so I think that is definitely a stereotype that we assume and that society assumes that black women are just these hyper fertile beings that aren't going to have infertility issues. Um, I think it stems from a lot of different places. First, I think it stems from slavery and the fact that women were slaves or bred to create more slaves. Um, That is a stereotype that is hundreds of years old that we have to move past. And similarly, we, we assume that black women have children younger, that they have multiple children. And so when we see a woman, a black woman with infertility, we just, we don't understand. We just, it, it just doesn't go with what our mental picture of infertility is. And that has consequences on black women who are infertile and don't know what to do about it. In my own practice, I've had black women come to me and say they didn't know they could be infertile because no one in their community talks about it. No friends, no family members. They didn't know anyone that had this. And they were asking for resources, and which I provide, but we have to do much better in that sense. Even something as simple as a website or a pamphlet that features all white women or all heterosexual couples, that, that gives you this you know, unconscious thought that this can't affect you. Yeah. That is just...
0: You know, definitely brought up a lot of stuff. And I think you're absolutely right about how pervasive and how deep this goes. It really goes beyond just, you know, the science and providing care. This is decades of implicit bias and Gosh, I wish, I hope that at least just putting this out into the world gives people a different perspective because it's such a huge thing to sit with. And you're right. We definitely see images of, you know, heterosexual Caucasian couples when we see commercials or we see, even if you're looking at under hashtags of infertility, you know, there's mm-hmm. it's, it's really predominated by that population. How do people change that narrative?
1: Right. I, I think it has to start, there have been definitely much many more foundations and organizations that are geared towards Black women, just so that Black women know that they are not alone in this, that there are other women who go through this. And um, one great one is Fertility for Colored Girls. That's a, a national organization that has different chapters in different cities that, you know, women can get together and talk about their infertility. Um, there is Black Women Infertility are on Instagram and on um, Facebook as well. And the Broken Brown Egg, those are all resources I give to my patients so that they are able to connect with other people going through this that might face similar discrimination in life or have similar... Um, issues with the shame or stigma that goes around this um, infertility in the Black community. I, I feel like, and I've I've heard, it appears to be a shameful topic because again of these biases that Black women should be hyper fertile. They should be able to have children. Are they less than now because they can? not And of course not. But again, these are decades old stereotypes that we have to break. And so when you see other women going through this, you realize you're not alone. And I think that's that's key with being able to move forward with treatment and just accepting what's happening.
0: I think that's great. I always do find that whether it's for polycystic ovarian syndrome or if it's chronic pelvic pain, it is nice to have a group where you can Mm -hmm. share your shared experiences besides for just having an understanding physician. It's nice to have people around you showing you that there are others and you are now broken and that there's other people out there. So I want to ask you, and you may not have this data, I would probably, I, I would assume that there's maybe not enough research on this, but in terms of success rates or initiating infertility treatment, do you see any differences between minority populations or not enough research or what do you see? There,
1: yeah, there, there needs to be more research. And that's twofold. One, there needs to be more research and that we need to have a better representation of black women and minority women in studies, um, even with our national collection of IVF information, even what we're reporting to black women, and minority women are underrepresented. So then it's hard to do great studies because the data isn't reflective of the whole population. Yeah. The studies that have been done, though, um, show a few things one that black women have more instances of tubal factor infertility as well as uterine fibroids both of which again can impact fertility as well as pregnancy miscarriage rates black women in certain studies have been shown to have um, lower pregnancy rates with IVF and doing fresh transfers reasons for that you know we, we don't know but it could be is it the tubal factor infertility is it the uterine fibroid issue you know we don't know but when you take that, when you take the fresh transfer away and you can move towards a frozen embryo transfer, that data seems to show that maybe the two populations are more similar. So again, what is it about fresh versus frozen transfers that Black women have less success in IVF? You know, we're still trying to figure that out. But it, we do know that Black women wait longer to see a doctor. Um, we know access to care is an issue. and We know that access and just representation in, in the database is an issue. And so those are all things that we have to systematically pick apart.
0: Right. And we were talking before we started recording too about the underrepresentation in medicine and, again, making a lot of assumptions that perhaps our minority patients would feel more comfortable with a Black physician, a Black female REI physician, of which I'm sure there are not to very many of you, mm-hmm. and so tell us what we know about. This. Let's start with just the underrepresentation of um, minorities in medicine.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the AAMC in two thousand eighteen, they looked at just representation, just demographics of different physicians in this country, and they found that Black physicians make up about six percent of physicians in this country, and which is striking considering that Black people make up about 13 ish percent of the population and black women make up a significantly smaller percentage, two to 3% of doctors in this country. Um, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of us. And why is that? Like, you know, what is happening to where black women are not going into medicine? How do we spread this awareness and and show girls and women that yes, you can be a doctor. You can do this too. Um, and we know from studies that representation matters. They're not that a patient has to go to someone who is their same race, but we know that certain patients do prefer it. And if they, if they, if they can find a doctor who they have trust in, they're more likely to proceed with care and do their preventative visits and treatment, etc. cetera. And so representation in medicine does
0: matter. Absolutely. I know because I wonder about the experience of somebody who has already crossed these barriers that you've already mentioned, which are astronomical. and for all intents and purposes, they see the most wonderful and caring older white physician. I mean, you know, I don't know what the patient experience is. I, I uh, have not had to have that experience, but I don't know if that also, again, just plays a role in maybe how their care journey is. I mean, there's so many micro cal- calculations to each of these little steps. I can't even imagine dissecting it out, but you might have some perspective.
1: Yeah, I think one is just, I think that the black community in general has more of a distrust in the medical community as a whole. Um, I think that stems from, again, decades of discrimination and racism in, in the system. And, you know, even, even our own U S history of the Tuskegee airmen who that whole issue, that, that brings distrust into how patients might feel towards doctors. Um, Henrietta lacks and her, her cells that, you know, we use that, you know, the medicine use without getting the consent of her and her family initially, um, those are all different issues of distrust in the system. And so that definitely plays a role in, in someone wanting to seek out care, but then also listening to the advice you're giving them. And I think even with women, especially black women, this plays a, a big role because I think there have been studies showing that women, especially black women have their, their symptoms might be you know, brush aside. Um, And so I think women in general have to be very vocal. If they know something is wrong with their body, they have to speak up. I am a very big proponent in being your best and own advocate. um, You know your body best. If you know there is something wrong, then you need to say something. If your doctor is choosing not to listen to you, then find someone else who's going to. I know that's a lot easier said than done, but you deserve to be heard um, by your physician and not shut down. And so I'm, I'm a very big advocate of women being their best advocate for medicine and their health.
0: Wow. I know there's, you know, some well-published studies, especially looking at uh, pain and reporting Mm -hmm. pain and findings that uh, minorities do get sort of brushed off as, you know, maybe either being histrionic or pain-seeking. And and so Mm -hmm. that's just like one layer. And then I think you may be, aware of the, I believe it was like a postpartum study looking at postpartum complaints. And so we just see this across, I mean, the whether it's, you know, women's health, traditionally women's health or not, it's just such a pervasive issue. It's such a pervasive concern. So there, yeah. there's just a lot of angles. I wanted to go back a step and ask you uh, just some basic definitions because I actually would love to learn the difference between a fresh and frozen transfer.
1: Yes. So a fresh and frozen transfer. So fresh transfer is you do IVF, you know, you're taking your injections for hormones to grow all the follicles in your ovaries. You have an egg retrieval to retrieve those eggs and then anywhere from three to five or so days later, we, After the eggs have been fertilized and then allowed to grow, we can transfer an embryo back into the body, into the uterus. Um, that's a fresh transfer when we do the transfer within the same cycle as the IBF was done, the egg retrieval process. Um, a frozen transfer instead is where you have your egg retrieval. Um, we, those eggs go to the lab, they're fertilized, they grow into embryos, they then get frozen. Um, with that, you can do genetic testing of the embryos um, if you choose to. But your body will then get a period, and then we reset, and then the next cycle, or months later, years later, whenever you want to come back, we can then prepare your body to have an embryo transfer. Um, and so that is kind of the difference, basic difference of a fresh versus frozen cycle.
0: Interesting. So, kind of what it sounds like then. Is this also the process when we do or when you do? quote, egg freezing. Is that sort of the same process? You said you can just kind of wait years and...
1: Yes, egg freezing is great because you can, you know, if you're 35 and you think you want to have kids one day, but you haven't found the right partner or you're doing, you're trying to advance your career, education... Um, you can go through the IVF process, you freeze your eggs, and they are pretty much good indefinitely from what, we, from what our studies have shown us. Um, you can come back when you are ready to then thaw those eggs and fertilize them with either a partner sperm if you have it or donor sperm if you choose to go that route as well. So it just it gives a woman options. I will never say that egg freezing is a guarantee. We, we can't really guarantee that those eggs will make a baby. Although I will say that spring fertility is, I think, one of the only clinics to guarantee that if you freeze the number of eggs they recommend based on your age and ovarian reserve, that they will guarantee you a baby at the end. And if not, you get your money back. Wow. Um, Wow. So that's, that's, yeah, that they're, they're very, they feel very strongly about their laboratory and the way they can freeze and thaw eggs. But in general, no one can promise you that this is going to work. So I would say this always gives you options. It's not a guarantee. But I think, again, it gives just women an option for their future.
0: So when is the best time to egg freeze?
1: Yeah, so that they've looked at kind of age and finances and that number, sometimes they come around as 35 to 37 if you're looking at purely financial and the likelihood that you will possibly need the eggs that you freeze. We know, again, that egg quality and egg quantity are going to be your best when you're younger in your early 20s. But the likelihood that a woman who's 22 needs to freeze eggs to, and then needs to use them is low because they have, you know, this prolonged period of time to find a partner and, and have children on their own. Um, so really, I'd say most women are typically in their early mid 30s to, to freeze eggs.
0: Got it. And when you think about just the cost to egg freezing, do you think there will be differences between different populations of women who, who can or who choose to do this and, and where we market and things like that?
1: Yes, I, that is definitely a big, it's another barrier to care. IVF, fertility treatment in general is expensive. It's a shame that some people will not be able to have a family because they can't afford to. and that is something that there are some states that mandate that insurances cover x amount of cycles of IVF, which is great. Um, not all I'd say most states do not do that. Some insurance uh, companies do cover it through through your job. It's much more common. I'd say on the definitely the West Coast with tech companies. Um, movie companies that do tend to cover egg, egg freezing IVF costs, but it's always worth looking into and like talking to your insurance. Some companies, fertility companies will have package pricing or plans that can hopefully relieve some of that burden, but it is expensive it, it's definitely a very expensive um, option for for building your family.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting to me how many things for women's health are so costly all the way up to, you know, pregnancy, like fertility treatments. You said one in six to one in eight. I mean, gosh, right? Mm -hmm. Up to, of course, I do a lot of menopause or sexual health. You can barely get anything covered for sexual function. It's just sort of like these things are, if they don't happen naturally and you're not fertile, they're not deemed medically necessary. When, you know, there's so much to a woman's life that, you know, it just, it's, it's there's definitely a unfair playing field here, I think, especially women utilize healthcare more, they have more medical issues, they have, you know, can get pregnant, which certainly can change their risk factors over over time. So all in all, I, it's just, it's mind blowing when you start to think about it.
1: It is. I, I think, you know, infertility is, it's a medical diagnosis. It is just as real as any other medical diagnosis that you could have. And treatment is essential and necessary for people who need it. And so it it is unfair that people don't have access to it if they can't afford it. I
0: know. What does tubal factor mean?
1: So your fallopian tubes, they come off of your uterus. They are what picks up an egg um, that is released from your ovary. And that is actually where fertilization takes place first. So egg and sperm will meet in your fallopian tubes. That little embryo will then grow in the, the fallopian tubes for a couple of days. It will travel to the uterus and that sort of implants. A lot of tubal factor infertility is just a form of infertility that is due to the fallopian tubes. Whether it's scarring or inflammation, um, you can have fluid that fills the fallopian tubes that can make it difficult to get pregnant. Um, and so that, those risk factors are higher. They've been shown in studies to be higher in black women compared to white women. And so again, that's another issue that black women face when trying to conceive.
0: So, Tamika, what advice do you have for your patients who are going through this journey and finding it really difficult?
1: It it is so difficult, and I think one is just don't wait to try to seek out care. At least um, get the workup going to see what could be going on and what treatment options are available to you. I know that for anyone seeing a doctor, it's it's scary. For t- this is a very emotional and scary journey that patients will go on, and so. Know that your doctors, you know, we have your back. We want, we have your best interests at heart. We want you involved and included in your care. You building the family of your dreams is our priority and our goal. But you have to kind of make that first leap into just having that first consult. And I think that's, I think it's really important just to to be seen.
0: And how do you think we can get more underrepresented minorities in the medical profession?
1: Yeah. I think that also goes back to early education and just giving people opportunities. Um, I think having mentors is key. I know I feel like growing up, I didn't know a lot of, I don't know know if I knew any black doctors. Um, I, I don't know how this, You know, my parents are in finance. So this isn't something that's like in my family. It's just something that I was always drawn to from a very early age. And I know even with my own experience, I was, will say talked out of becoming a doctor. It was, oh, you could be a nurse instead, or you could go um, this route instead and do positions assistant, or you can do X, Y, and Z. And then when I look into those, you know, they're all great fields, but I, I feel like that's just, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And so you have to have the belief in yourself that you can do this. It's, it's a long journey and it's hard, but it's worth it to find the career path that you love and to be able to do what you love on a daily basis. So I think having the belief in yourself and seeking out mentorship, I am always willing to talk to anyone who wants to, that has questions about this path and journey and how I got to where I am.
0: Wow. What was one of the hardest things that you faced during your journey? I would say really,
1: it was actually most recently when, um, as I was looking for a job and hoping to stay in LA initially just because of my husband's job and I had interviewed at a couple places. And at that point I was, I was probably 30 plus weeks along. So at that point, very difficult to hide being pregnant. Um, and I was asked by multiple people, multiple people during job searches, like, Oh, like, do you plan on working after having a baby? Do you plan on working full time after having a baby? And I was asked so many times that it just, it really frustrated me because my husband was never asked that as he was interviewing for jobs up in the Bay area. No one asked him, Oh, your, your wife is going to have a child. Like, do you plan on working full time? And so I just got very frustrated with that double standard and that sexism in medicine. like, yes, I do. I do plan to work full time and I plan to be a good mother and we're, it's going to take a little village to raise our child. But I just think it's very unfair that, you know, that those questions were asked in the first place.
0: Yeah. I remember when I was pregnant and always, I'm sure it's always, it's hard to be an infertility physician when you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Similarly, it's hard to be a pregnant menopause specialist because no one thinks that you are going to be able to treat them because you've got all the hormones raging, right? But uh, so many people assumed I was going to go part-time. They mm-hmm. ask me right off the bat, you know, my mm-hmm. patients, oh, well, we'll probably be going part-time now. And not that that's, there's a right or wrong answer. It's just the assumption, right? It's the, yep. it's the fact that women are, have to be an open book, right? Our bodies yep. are an open book. We can't hide what's going on with us. And so we, we also sort of have to be an open book. Well, I really asked you a lot of tough questions here. I really put you um, on the spot, and I think that you gave our listeners so much really good things to think about, especially when it comes to the social aspect, the cultural aspect of infertility, not just the nuts and bolts, but really like the barriers and how we change representation of physicians and our patients. Any final thoughts on this topic that you might have or you want to share?
1: I want all women, people, anyone who's suffering through infertility, just to know that this is not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong to cause this. This It's a medical diagnosis, and it is something that you deserve to have care for. And I just don't want anyone to ever think that they did something wrong to cause this. I, you know, it's, it's a very emotional journey, but just know that your doctors are here for you. If you don't have someone that you are just absolutely in love with then try someone else, find a different, find a second opinion and find someone that you connect with. And that can help guide you on this journey that you're going to be on.
0: I suspect you're going to have a lot of people want to come and see you when you guys move up to the Bay Area. Where can our listeners find you to either learn from you or see you? Where can people find you?
1: Yes, so I will be at Spring Fertility Um, in a couple weeks. I'll be starting Um, their website is springfertility.com. They they have a few office locations: San Francisco, Oakland, and Redwood City. Um, And then I am on Instagram as well, and I tend to post a lot about fertility and just my journey through medicine, race, which has been obviously a very big topic over the past several months. Um, my Instagram is Tamika Zori N D. Um, it's T E M E K A Z O R E M D. So please, you know, join me on this journey that we're going to be going on.
0: Yeah, please follow Tamika. I'm going to uh, link your Instagram handle as well as where you're going to be working soon down below so people can look there too because you have so much information. And the nice thing about Instagram I found is you get to see people's, you get to see these journeys, you see these evolving stories, and sometimes it's medical information and sometimes it's just us being humans. And so Mm -hmm. it's really nice. And I've met so many of my colleagues across the country that way, as well as people who want second. Opinions and nowadays, you know, there's just so much ability to connect. I guess I said I already had a final question for you, but uh, are is your new home thinking about telemedicine? I there's obviously some inherent challenges in that you cannot do you know fresh frozen transfers across the country, mm-hmm. but will you guys be thinking about offering telemedicine services?
1: Absolutely, they they started that right away. You know, infertility had like a little bit of a shutdown for almost a month or so as we were in the beginning of this pandemic. And spring fertility is very much about patient safety. And so they have gone to, I'd say almost completely new patient consults are all done through telemedicine. And I think that's really nice because you can really get a gist of who this doctor is talking to them. Like, yes, it's not in person, but you can still, from the comfort and privacy of your own home, still be able to start that initial evaluation. With spring fertility, if you do choose to move forward with treatment, then they will schedule you for your first visit in the office. And there you will undergo that initial infertility workup, um, doing an ultrasound, blood work, if your partner needs a semen analysis, et cetera. Um, And so they do definitely utilize that. Very respectful of safety and following all current medical recommendations. So, you know, we want you to be comfortable and feel safe when you are in the office.
0: Yeah, it's such a nice option because. Now, someone who's listening to this, maybe who's a few states over, still might have the ability to be able to see you and really find it worth it, even if it costs to travel, if they want the right doctor, if they want that person to listen. So it's just heartwarming to have you in the position that you're in with the perspective that you have in this power couple life, but you've got a busy life, but it's so wonderful to see all the things that you're doing and that you're going to continue to do. So I'm so excited for you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you so much always for listening in. And if you like this podcast, please leave us a review or some stars because that helps the podcast in that iTunes algorithm, so that more people can see it. And I'm so excited to have had uh, Dr. Zori on for the third in the series of the Black Lives Matter campaign because I really do want to use my voice in this platform to bring about awareness to some of the disparities that you may not even notice are going on. So thank to have had your perspective and just straight up facts about this. So thank you guys, every one of you for listening in. I know that was really heavy, but so much good stuff that everyone really needs to take home. Have a good day or evening. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.